Welcome to Force Multiplier, a new podcast about leveling up the impact we can have on the world through our relationships. I'm Baritone Day Thurston, and in collaboration with iHeartRadio and Salesforce.org, I sit with leaders from across the public, private, and nonprofit world who are forging partnerships to tackle some of the toughest challenges facing us today. Welcome back to Force Multiplier. What's up? How you doing? I'm Baratunde. Day. I'm your host. Now, today's episode, we are going to talk about health equity, which are two words that you probably understand in isolation, but together, there's a lot of different interpretations of that. So I think health equity means that everybody's got a fair opportunity, a just opportunity to live their healthiest lives. It's not just about access to medicine or quality doctors. It's the opportunity to live a full and healthy life. Now, this is something that applies globally as well as locally. And in one acute area right now, it's very present as an issue. I'm talking immunization, vaccination. Yep, we're going to talk about the Rona. This is a COVID-centric episode. Because when COVID showed up here in the U.S. and in many places around the world, a lot of us got hit with this message of unity. Like this pandemic is going to bring everybody together, is going to flatten some of the distinctions of economics and race and culture in the U.S. and around the world. And in some ways, it did. We all, for the most part, upgraded our Zoom accounts, right? That brought us together. We got brought together on a platform like Zoom. But in other ways, COVID has been not so much a leveler as a revealer. It's been a kind of truth serum showing us the truth of the health inequities we have for too long lived with. Because some people were overexposed to this virus and continue to be so because of the occupations they hold or the neighborhoods they live in. And some of that aligns with their class and their race and their ethnicity. Other people have been bearing a mental weight of this pandemic in an extraordinary way. And then there are those who've been hit by the financial impact of the pandemic. Again, a burden unequally distributed. This matters because we're not going to be healthy until we're all healthy. That's kind of how infectious diseases work. And the longer we have large numbers of people without vaccination the more their bodies can serve as incubators to the next variant, which might undermine our defenses and threaten us in new and more horrible ways than COVID has already proven an ability to do. So we've all got an interest in all of us being healthy. And COVID showing us what it means when we succeed and when we fail. Now, in this episode, we're going to hear from two amazing people who are creating good news out of this maelstrom. Because I know a lot of the COVID news, it's hard. It's hard. You got political disagreements about who should get vaccinated. Is it even real? You got economic disparity. You got the vast majority of the world not even able to argue about whether they want to take a vaccine or not because they don't have access to it. So our first guest, she's working on that one. Aurelia Guyen is the managing director at the office of the COVAX facility at the 74th World Health Assembly. Quite a title, I acknowledge. I talked to her about her role 
in leading the coordination, procurement, and delivery of COVID-19 vaccines to the vast majority of the global population in a multilateral, global, cross-sector partnership kind of way. I don't envy the job she has, but I am very impressed that she signed up to do this. After that, we're going to hear from Dr. Dominic Mack. He's the director of Morehouse School of Medicine's National Center for Primary Care and leads a cross-sector partnership gathering critical resources and data on COVID-19, using that to connect families to culturally and linguistically appropriate information and services. I hope you enjoy. Global health equity is about how we bring forward a level of access to healthcare that everyone can depend on. It's not about just coping with COVID-19. So it's only through really strong healthcare systems in all parts of the world that we, as a human society, will be better protected. Aurelia Guyen is the managing director of the COVAX facility. She's dedicated her life's work to enabling equitable access to medicines and vaccines for some of the world's poorest and underserved communities. So can you share with listeners, how did this organization come to be and what specific problems is it trying to solve? So Gavi is a vaccine alliance. It helps to vaccinate about half of the children in the world against infectious diseases that can be deadly or very debilitating. It was founded in 2000, and its mission is to save lives, to reduce poverty, and to protect the world against the threat of epidemics and other diseases. Since 2000, Gavi has vaccinated more than 880 million children in the world's poorest countries. And what you get by vaccinating that many children is that you're saving 14 million deaths from happening. Gavi's focus seems to be so much on equity, right? Making sure everyone, as much as is possible, has access to vaccines. Why is that so important? It's part of what I would think is a fundamental human right in terms of having access to healthcare as needed. So it's a question of equity that regardless of where you are born, you will have access to vaccination. There's also the economic argument. Diseases circulate very, very rapidly. And so having a small portion of population protected or even a country doesn't mean that we can re-engage in trade, in travel, and the viruses keep circulating. And then lastly, perhaps from an evolutionary perspective, as we've seen with the emergence of variants, as long as viruses circulate, they continue to evolve. And so, again, making sure that everyone is protected, regardless of where they live, is really important in terms of being able to have ultimately a lasting response, whether you live in a rich country or in a poor country. Is the lack of equal access to vaccines due to the high cost of vaccines? Is that due to production challenges? Is that due to intellectual property laws? What's the holdup? Yeah, it's been a long-standing problem, and it's definitely been amplified by COVID-19. At the basis there, 
isn't enough vaccine manufacturers in the world, or they're very concentrated in some of the richer countries. So this is a problem that my organization, Gavi, we've been working to remedy for some time. When the organization started, I think it was buying vaccines from five manufacturers, most of which were in rich countries. Um, Two decades later, we buy from 17 suppliers, more than half of them in Africa and Asia, in Latin America. And so the work that I do and that I've been doing even before the pandemic, we call it market shaping, essentially by creating a sustainable and a predictable market. You encourage manufacturers to come in and it helps create the right sort of competition in terms of getting the best vaccines, in terms of getting more affordable vaccines, and also getting the volumes that we need to vaccinate very, very broadly. And so as the managing director of the COVAX facility, I've been pooling all of the demand from the country, so 193 countries, and then contracting for 2 billion doses for this year, 2021, and making sure that we have that supply coming online. On the surface, vaccine hoarding makes some sense. I mean, we in the United States had this policy, which is we're going to distribute to ourselves first, and then whatever is left over, we'll give to the rest of the world. We're not the only nation to have approached it this way. But how do you define vaccine hoarding? And how do you convince a nation's leaders to choose a different path, one that might seem a bit more selfless and not in their own self-interest? Essentially, the way that I read it is that it's an action a government will take to use its wealth or to use its position of power to procure more vaccines than they really need. And I think there are lots of reasons why this could happen. Governments need to be answerable to their citizens. Also, when this crisis happened, we didn't know which vaccines would work and which vaccines would not. And so um, there were many contracts for many different vaccines. But That's not to say that there haven't been, I think, deliberate cases of vaccine hoarding that I think were motivated more from a sort of political or sort of financial type of agenda. A lot of the early supply that we were counting on was from India for international use. And of course, with the very devastating second wave in India, those vaccines were used domestically and weren't available. And so we have a diverse manufacturer base so that if there are instances, their impact is as limited as possible. And then as countries get to a place like in the United States, where vaccine coverage is reaching a high level enough, then being able to really be able to access the excess supply for international rollouts through vaccine donations, I think is critical. So it's about really being able to move into a different space from a domestically focused response to an international focused response. These nationalistic leaders, do they understand that a more vaccinated world is safer for everyone in that world? I think it's been a slow realization as the pandemic has evolved. I think it's been a bit of a wake-up call in terms of really understanding that this very often used phrase of no one is safe until everyone is safe, what it means in practice, which is vaccination within one's borders is not going to be enough to protect one's populations. Uh, We've dabbled around it, but we're going to get right to it now. COVAX a term I hear on global radio broadcasts and my news feeds, but many of us don't fully understand. What is this COVAX collaboration? Who's involved? 
And what is Gavi's role in it? So it was a partnership of four organizations. So my own, Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, or CEPI, the World Health Organization, and UNICEF. And basically what these four organizations did is they brought together the experience in development, procurement, and rollout of vaccines really focused on COVID. And so within COVAX, we brought together 193 governments, so that's about 90% of the global population, into a multilateral global effort. And I think it's the largest effort since the Paris Climate Agreement in terms of the numbers of countries that came together. This collaboration sounds a bit miraculous from the number of countries to the amount of dollars to the number of doses that are on your roadmap. What is everyone's role within COVAX? Like, what is WHO doing that's different from what Gavi's doing, different from CEPI and UNICEF? So if you think about sort of the journey a vaccine needs to take, each of the organization has a little bit of a piece of that journey. So CEPI has very much been focusing on the research and development side, making sure they were getting the best science in the fastest time. Gavi has really been looking at the financing, the procurement of the vaccine, contracts with the manufacturers, and then thinking about how to deploy in countries. The World Health Organization has all of the normative functions, if you like, you know, is the vaccine safe and effective? Are we going to need boosters? What do we think about variant vaccines? And then UNICEF is very much doing the rollout, the shipment, making sure that everything is in place so that ultimately the vaccines can get to the countries and then get through to the vaccination centers. So it's that little journey the organizations coordinate together to uh, bring a vaccine from uh, lab to arm. With so many moving parts, with such high expectations and requirements around this, what's the hardest part of maintaining this collaboration? I think that the hardest part of maintaining collaboration is that things are moving so fast. We're still understanding a lot about the disease, about how efficacious the vaccines are. We're trying to make sure that we can do things as quickly as possible. Usually they would happen over 10 years. Here we're asking people to do things in 10 days. And that really involves a huge amount of communication. And I think it really uh, implies uh, making a lot of decisions with imperfect information at times. And so I think having a real premium on communicating as much as possible the best information that we have and being able to understand who's best placed to make the decision and who's best placed to act on it, that's the number one challenge. I've known people who've worked in international development and there's been a criticism of a top-down sort of imposition of a solution on a local community. How does COVAX with Gavi work to involve local communities in decisions about something as uh, intimate and urgent as this COVID-19 vaccine rollout? For me, vaccination is really only going to be successful if it's about empowerment. That's the individual, it's the family, it's the community. And then beyond that, of course, you know, the health system, the government. But really at the heart of it is making sure that there is very, very strong community involvement from the healthcare workers, from the volunteers who go into communities and do the outreach. It's interesting to think that 
outside of the context of COVID, in developing countries, usually there's a strong acceptance of vaccination because people are familiar with very deadly diseases and understand the role that vaccines have. And we see people walk very, very long distances, wait for hours to make sure that their children are protected. And so making sure that People understand the benefits, the risks of vaccination in a way that's really meaningful to them, that's driven from within. In terms of the decision-making on the ground, what role does a local partner play in the decision about how some of this global collaboration lands in their community? So in Gavi, we have a board that also brings in all of the voices of the different actors, be it the donors, the technical partners, the implementing countries, but also the civil society organizations. And so for any of the strategic discussions that take place or any of the big financing investments, those are brought together where everyone has a voice at the table, everyone is able to deliberate and give an opinion so that they very much can see themselves reflected in the decision making, not just being sort of a passive recipient of funding that's being asked to do things. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. In all of the levers and connections and links in the collaboration of this size, what would you say is the force multiplier in making it effective? I think the force multiplier is around how each of the organizations are able to bring what they do best aimed towards a single objective around getting vaccinations out and around ultimately saving lives. And so it's about using the private sector for the expertise they bring, the vaccine manufacturers for the R&D they do, the technical partners for all of the knowledge they have, the countries who want to save the lives of their citizens, and really bringing them together in a way that's quite the opposite of a lowest common denominator, but actually being able to build more than each individual partner would be able to do and bringing it all together in one vision. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I want to talk to you a bit about your your personal experience in all of this. As far as I've discovered, you studied as an accountant with a focus on health policy, planning, and financing. Did you always know you wanted to work in the area of health and healthcare? I mean, I've dedicated my whole career pretty much to enabling equitable access to medicines and vaccines. It's a little bit my North Star, but I would say I never expected to be in a position like this. But even going back to my days at university, I was really fascinated by how science through drug discovery can really make a huge impact to people's lives and particularly in developing countries. So what I did is over time, I brought together my technical skills in finance. I brought my fascination for the impact of medicines and then vaccines. And then my passion around the health inequities in developing countries, all of those together. So it is an honor, I think, to be able to do the work that I do today. And I think hopefully it will make a difference to this pandemic. You describe this as your North Star and having uh, such an interest in the health of developing nations. Where does that come from? Um, I think for me, I sit a little bit with a foot in two worlds, having sort of a French and a Vietnamese heritage in terms of developed world and developing world, and maybe being able to sort of see the contrasts 
in the levels of healthcare that people have access to, the impact that it has on their lives. So I think maybe it was very much through sort of personal journey that I got more and more interested and wanted to see how I could reconcile a little bit the two worlds that I come from. It seems like you have one of the most pressure-filled jobs I could imagine on the planet right now, helping find ways to equitably distribute a much-needed vaccine to as many people as possible, as quickly as possible, as safely as possible. Do you have doubts or fears about your role in this at any time? I think the way that I approached it is really focusing on doing everything I could do to ensure that COVAX succeeded. And for me, that's because COVAX is the only global actor in this whole crisis that was going to look at COVID-19 vaccine access for everyone. And there is a lot of pressure because it's drawn a lot of attention and that comes with the negative, the detractors, the naysayers. And I don't think I would say that we've got everything perfect by any stretch of imagination. I mean, we are building a ship while sailing it, so to speak. But we really have to, I think, stay focused on the fact that at the moment, no one else is looking at this global crisis in a global manner. Without COVAX, the world would be in a worse off position. But that's not to say I'm not feeling out of my depth several times a day, possibly. I have a good friend of mine who likes to remind me she's, and says that, you know, with the pandemic, the world is out of its depth. So perhaps I'm not so different to the rest of the world. <laughs> I like that. I like that. But ultimately, focusing on what do we need to do to end the acute phase of this pandemic and just doing it one step at a time. It's one manufacturer deal. It's one vaccine delivery. It's one vaccine injection at a time. Yeah, one shot at a time. I want you to imagine that there is a leader or future leader listening to you right now who's going to end up in a position of multilateral collaboration on an epic scale in their own life, in their own future. Given what you've been through, given what you're in the middle of right now, what advice would you offer this person? I would say find your North Star and don't worry too much about the labels, whether you're working in the private sector, in the public sector, in the government, whether you're working as a technical this or a managerial that. Find the building blocks that you need to chart that road and keep uh, pushing for it and surround yourself well. Thank you, Aurelia, for this wonderful conversation. Keep pursuing your North Star. Thanks. You're listening to a podcast called Force Multiplier, Action Meets Impact. Now, you've probably grown to expect ads inside your podcast, but we're going to do something a little bit different. To walk the walk, we're going to take a quick break and hear from one of the organizations featured in this episode. Be right back. One year ago, Gavi launched the COVAX Advanced Market Commitment, an innovative solution for an unprecedented pandemic designed to ensure no country misses out on vaccines that offer us all a route back to normality. Twelve months later, 
COVAX has a long list of accomplishments. Vaccines have been approved for use. Countries are ready to receive them. A scheme to help people access compensation is in place. And 1.3 billion doses are contracted to COVAX. But we now face a fork in the road. Down one road lies a two-tier world in which the pandemic continues to rage, economies continue to be hit, the vulnerable are thrown into extreme poverty, and variants continue to evolve. The COVAX AMC can help put us on another path in which we defeat this virus together, united. But to do this, the AMC needs urgent resources. It needs long-term financing to help the AMC evolve as the pandemic evolves. It needs urgent doses donated from countries with vaccines to spare. And it needs the collective will of governments, financiers, civil society and vaccine manufacturers to leave no one behind. COVAX is committed to deliver. Hey you, it's Baratunde, host of the podcast you're listening to right now. When I was a kid, my mom told me to come up with a system we could live under after democracy had failed. Yeah, my mom was intense. I haven't finished that assignment, but I did make a podcast. It's called How to Citizen with Baratunde. It reimagines citizen as a verb and reminds us how to wield our collective power. Find seasons one and two in whatever podcast app you're using right now. And season three, all about tech, Drops in October 2021. Learn more at howtocitizen.com. So as we've heard, health equity is undoubtedly a global issue. But none of us is like a global person. We live somewhere. You live somewhere. So what does health equity mean for you? For your neighborhood? For your community? Have you noticed among your own family? people who are struggling, not because of choices that they've made, but maybe because of choices they're unable to make? Have you noticed in your daily life and the workers and colleagues and other people you interact with, who's living a healthier life and who isn't, who has access and who doesn't? We had an opportunity to speak with Dr. Dominic Mack, director of the Morehouse School of Medicine's National Center for Primary Care and the National COVID-19 Resiliency Network. Check it out. The National Center for Primary Care is a research training center that provides resources to strengthen the primary care system. So we not only identify inequities in health when it comes to primary care and primary care-related health concerns, but also to produce solutions. And... Community-oriented primary care is significant to the NCPC or the National Center for Primary Care model because, you know, terminologies come and go, but it's a concept that's very important. If you go into a community and you're trying to improve the health of that community and the street lights are not on and there's dilapidated cars on the street, the people don't have housing and they don't have food, maybe you need to give them a meal first turn those lights back on before you can talk to them about improving their health. You know, someone has three jobs, 
they may not have time to come visit the physician, right, or get a vaccine. Those social determinants that are so important, we know your lifestyle, the way you live, a number of factors, the environment, uh, really impact your health. Health care is 20% or less of your health. So starting to look at the communities, you have to look at those social determinants that affect them. So how can we begin to do that? Data is important. And taking a scientific approach, data helps you to discover inequities within the communities. But that same data or different data that you gather can also help you to develop solutions. You know, you will find some pockets of underserved communities where they're doing maybe better than other communities. So you can get the data, whether it's around hypertension, diabetes, or physician access, bias, racism, et cetera, and analyzing that data helps you develop solutions that may work within the community. The problem is, is the data accurate? Is it comprehensive? Does it include all communities? Well, it still comes down to garbage in, garbage out. If it's not inclusive, then you have communities who are left at a disadvantage. So what happens with the funding? Do they get the funding? Uh, Resources go to those areas that are identified that have a need. And if they can't be identified, you can't get the resources to those communities. In June 2020, Morehouse School of Medicine received a $40 million grant to help fight COVID-19. By nurturing existing partnerships and developing new ones, Dr. Mack and team created a network designed to work with community-based organizations across the nation to deliver education and information to help fight the pandemic. With the National COVID-19 Resiliency Network, once we received the award, the first step was to develop, strengthen, and secure partners. We have about 45 strategic partners, another 200 plus community-based partners. It's a team. So what we had to do is build a program to meet the objectives that we had proposed and to meet mainly the barrier of overcoming obstacles within communities to link the disproportionately impacted communities to care. Still, the issue comes, just like with the data, that the best technology, the latest technology, gets to certain communities first. So we started to work with our technology partners to make sure that we developed a communication system where first get the message out to people how to be safe, social distance, masking, vaccination, etc., but getting it out in their language. So we have about 30 languages now that could reach those partners mobily, within their homes, on their mobile phones, etc. KPMG is our major partner with that. And then develop the messaging that can overcome those barriers. How do you convince somebody remotely to take a vaccine? Um, that takes messaging, that takes testing of the messaging, but also utilizing messaging out there that's already successful and working hand-in-hand with the Office of Minority Health who provided this award, and then CDC, NIH, and others to team up to affect communities. 
So how do you develop a program where you're fair and equitable and that you're addressing all the needs? The force multiplier is to include the community at the beginning stage in the development of these programs and give them the resources. The United States has the resources. Give them the resources to develop and implement the program. So having someone of a like racial or ethnic group, uh, a like disability, uh, someone else who's who has been an immigrant to the United States, uh, a refugee to administer program to you as a refugee who understands your plight, you know, that's powerful. They're more likely to listen to them than they are to me. So it's understanding the importance of that communication from a trusted source. That's been the cornerstone of the program to seek and rely on partners who really know these communities to disseminate a message within their own communities. Advice I would give to others who wanted to make an impact is find something that you truly like to do. You know, a lot of people have jobs they really don't like. So do something you really enjoy and hopefully that's something where you can give back to others. I think when you can give back, um, you're more satisfied at the end of the day. And if you're thinking too much about people thinking about you every day and what you do, I think you're thinking wrong. Just do the best you can for others. Don't worry about your legacy, right? It's going to be what it's going to be. But the best way to build it is to work for the people. You know, if you can help one person, if you can save one life, I mean, that's tremendous. Yo, aren't those some extraordinary people? I'm glad they're on our side against this pandemic. And they both spoke to the value of communication, which is kind of what stands out to me that they share. Aurelia spoke about it as one of the greatest challenges in administering the COVAX facility and as one of the most important skills, communicating among the partners with imperfect information that's constantly changing, keeping everyone updated with the latest and best info possible, and being mindful of who's in the best position to act on a decision. Meanwhile, Dr. Max spoke of communication on the ground and the value of trusted messengers in convincing people to take certain actions for their health, like getting vaccinated. The awareness that it's not just the message, but the messenger, and the language that the messenger uses is key to closing some of our health equity gaps. It's clear technology plays a critical role in facilitating and accelerating these efforts. For Aurelia, it's enabling fast access to vaccines with a single secure portal that all participating countries can use, sharing information and communicating with more efficiency and greater accountability. For Dr. Mack, it's leveraging technology to collect and assess community data, isolating the pockets of inequities that exist, and developing customized messaging to address them. Both Aurelia and Dr. Mack have crossed the lines that often separate us by profession, organization, industry, and even nation. They've built teams and used their talents to pursue the achievable goal that everyone can live a full and healthy life. 
Do you want to dig in more on today's guests and the work they're doing? Or maybe you want to understand what action you can take in your community. Either way, go to salesforce.org slash force multiplier. That's one word, force multiplier. Force Multiplier is a production of iHeartRadio and Salesforce.org, hosted by me, Baratunde Thurston. It's executive produced by Elizabeth Stewart, produced by Yvonne Sheehan, and engineered, edited, and mixed by James Foster. Join us next time for more stories of how we can change the world one relationship at a time. Listen to Force Multiplier on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 